Support for this podcast provided by Wisconsin Historical Society Press, proud publishers of Madison in the 60s by Stuart Levitin, an absorbing and evocative account of 10 years that changed the city forever. To order Madison in the 60s and other beautiful books that share our state's centuries-long history and culture in service to the mission of the Wisconsin Historical Society, visit wisconsinhistory.org whspress. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. In fact, the only radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan, with a big thank you to some special listeners who appreciate the community aspect of our endeavor here and made generous contributions during last week's show. Therese from Madison. Tim from Fitchburg, and the peripatetic Anonymous. Thank you. You know, we had so much fun talking about sports and society last week with Dave Zirin, we decided to stick with the topic and reprise our conversation with Patrick W. Steele, author of Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee, from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press. And it's a timely topic, as the 2021 National League Central Conference champion Milwaukee Brewers are about to open their playoff series against, yes, the Atlanta Braves. You know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin has a great, even historic, baseball heritage, dating to the late 19th century. Mid-20th century, the minor league Milwaukee Brewers were frequent league champs and were even owned during the war years by the legendary Bill Veck which is, indirectly, why in 1953 the owner of the Boston Braves, a Major League Baseball team in the National League, moved the team to Milwaukee. The Milwaukee Braves found immediate success on the field and in the stands. They took the National League title in 1957 and 58, winning the World Series in just their fifth year over the mighty and haughty New York Yankees. Attendance at the county-owned county stadium led the league and even set records and was second over that entire period only to the Dodgers of Flatbush and Chavez Ravine. It meant a lot to Milwaukee to be a big league city, and it was very good for everybody's business. But then, in October 1964, the owners, the new owners, announced they were moving the team to Atlanta, Georgia. Milwaukee County sued them and kept the Braves for another year, but in 1966, they opened the season in a stadium in Atlanta. And that's why there's an A on Henry Aaron's cap on his plaque in the Hall of Fame. How the Braves came to Milwaukee and why they left is the business that occupies Patrick W. Steele in his award-winning history, Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee, as I said, from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press. That award is the Gambrinus Prize from the Milwaukee County Historical Society. Dr. Steele is an assistant professor of history at Concordia University, where he focuses on Asian and American history, the Vietnam War, the modern Middle East, and, for our purposes, the history of sports. It was a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat Professor Patrick W. Steele. Hi. You didn't live through this story, but your mother was a big Braves fan. What narrative about the Braves leaving did you have growing up? My mom was very angry and upset when they left because she was a diehard fan growing up. They came when she was 10 years old. So she was right at that age where she could remember things. She still remembered going to Borchardt Field to see the old birds, but she loved going to the Braves games. You know, taking the bus over there. I don't know how many times later on she told me the story about her and her friends, you know, um, taking the county bus over to the stadium going in for ladies day at half price and just, you know, enjoying the game. To this day, my mom still absolutely loves baseball, but she never really got over it. So for me, one of the greatest pleasure snaps that I got was when the Brewers went into the National League. First time the Braves actually came back and played a regular season game at County Stadium. I bought tickets to that game in the diamond box seats at County Stadium on the Braves side of the field. So my mom could go out there and boo the team and get it out of the (laughs) stadium. 
It was a great night. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. In some ways, it allowed a lot of the people in the area to bury the hatchet. But there's still a lot of people that are you know angry and upset you know with the Braves leaving. And you know, and again, you can't really do it this year because even games televised, if there are going to be any at Miller Park, you know, we'll just have cardboard cutouts. But you know, I, I've been telling people for years, if you watch any broadcast of a Brewers game at Milwaukee, you will find people wearing Braves caps. Somewhere in the stands to see somebody wearing a brave shirt that's still happening all these years later, that there's still a connection to that magical 13 seasons, you know, that we had with that team. So when you went into writing the book, did you have a received wisdom of who was to blame or, or was it totally terra incognita? I had absolutely no clue. I mean, the narrative always was greedy owners, you know, and in almost any book that was written by a fan. And again, with all due respect, you know, it was because they grew up, they had that personal connection to it. Me, I felt like I could go into it objectively because I wasn't here when they left. I, I wasn't a fan of the team. So therefore, I could look at things really objectively and clearly. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I'm sitting in my office here at home. This is the office I did most of the writing in. There are times I just go storming out of my office. My wife would go, what's going on? I'm just like, I just, I hate all sides in this. You know, I, I, I just hate all sides. You know, I can't stand what the county was doing. I can't stand what the ownership was doing. I don't understand some of the things the fans were, you know, it was like a pox on everybody and just walk away. I hate using the expression perfect storm, but it was a perfect storm for everything to go wrong in that narrow window of time that had any, you know, couple of things change, you know, had Fred Miller live, um, you know, had the SELA group had money on the front. I mean, there's all kinds of different narratives where the Braves would still be here. Well, you know? let's, work through, let's work through those narratives and, and start at the beginning. As 1953 opens, baseball has been static for literally half a century. It's played mainly in the Northeast, but there are big changes afoot. Set the stage and introduce the owners and their stadiums in Boston and St. Louis and that brand new, never been used, publicly owned stadium in Milwaukee as we get to February and March of 1953. Well, the situation in St. Louis is what kind of triggers everything. The uh, St. Louis Browns own Sportsman's Park. They lease it out actually to the Cardinals. So the Cardinals are the uh, visitors, you know, technically, you know, in, the, in that ball club, but certainly were far more popular. And actually, there was an opportunity for Fred Miller, uh, president of the Miller Brewing Company, to buy the St. Louis Cardinals when the old ownership of the Cardinals was kind of pushed out the door. And then Augie Bush stepped up with the finances of the Anheuser-Busch Company and bought the Cardinals to keep them in St. Louis. And that pretty much meant the St. Louis Browns, who originally had started as a charter member of the American League back in 1901, here in Milwaukee, they were the original Milwaukee Brewers, the possibility that they could come back and play in a new ballpark that was being built in Milwaukee at the time. In Boston, Bravesfield was old. And it's a little bit ironic that there's sections of that stadium that are still standing today. When County Stadium is gone and when Atlanta Fulton County Stadium is gone and the Braves no longer play uh, you know, at Turner Field, there's still an old part of Braves Field standing in Boston, but it was an antiquated park. It had deep walls, so, you know, home runs were not uh, easy to come by at the park. Sight lines were not real good. There was hope that maybe they could fix some of the things that were going on. The, the real problem in Boston was attendance. Um, in 1952, they drew just over 280000 for a full season. Parking was not very easy around Braves Field. And so a couple things are going to happen. Braves were becoming financially unviable in Boston. Boston City is larger than Milwaukee, but when you include the outlying areas, it's actually comparable to southeastern Wisconsin with Milwaukee as a hub. And they're trying to support two baseball teams, and it just wasn't economically feasible. I think, though, you know, had Lou Perini and his brothers, you know, had their choice, had they had one more year in Boston, they might have been able to save it. They had a lot of talent coming through. Milwaukee was actually the home of their AAA team, the Milwaukee Brewers. And the team had won the Little World Series in 51 and 52, and there was a lot of talent coming up through that, that AAA level. And the hope was if you could get them up to the big club, you know, you might be able to turn things around. But Bill Vack, uh, who owned the St. Louis Browns, kind of forced their hand by trying to move his team to get into the brand-new county stadium in time for the start of the 1953 baseball season. Bill Vec owned the, the minor league Milwaukee Brewers for a period of time during the war. He sold it once, and then that, that ownership team sold to Lou Perini, who also owned the Boston Braves. How cool would it have been for Bill Vec, as in Rec, to come back to Milwaukee and be a major league owner of the St. Louis, of the now Milwaukee Browns? 
Well, it, it would have been, you know, and actually it was funny because when he owned the team in Milwaukee, when he owned the minor league brewers, he had worked with Fred Miller to promote the team, to bring Miller Brewing in and, and do some promotion and stuff like that. So they could, they were, you know, they were friends. Miller tried to buy the Browns when they came up for sale before Bill Vec got in there and Bill Vex bought it out from underneath Fred Miller and Fred Miller never got over that. So, you know, he would have liked to have been the owner of the club having, you know, brought it back himself. But Bill Vec, you know, his father was the president of the Chicago Cubs. He grew up, you know, at Wrigley Field. He knew Milwaukee was a great baseball town. They were hampered really only by the tiny little ballpark they had, Orchard Field. And he's like, if they had a new municipal state, you know, stadium, either municipal or privately owned, he's like, you know, it would do very well because there are a lot of really good baseball fans in southeastern Wisconsin. And, of course, that was proven right when the Braves came in 53. And what are the dynamics behind Milwaukee County building the stadium? Well, there was a lot of, lot of things going on, you know, in the county. Coming out of World War II, there was this push um, to kind of enhance the county's image. And, you know, there had been talk about building a stadium actually going all the way back to the 1920s and 30s. The question would be, how big was it going to be? Where was it going to be? And so the county finally got the ball rolling. They, they it actually did take an act of Congress because they got some of the land from the federal government. Again, if you've ever been to County Stadium or Miller Park, you can see up on the hill, the old soldier's home. Well, that whole area used to be part of the veterans, what's now the Veterans Administration. They own the land and that was for the uh, old soldiers, the veterans to, to have access to. So um, the promise was that they built a stadium, they would give access to the, the people that are staying up at the old soldier's home to access games, whatever. And so the county actually got shovels and stuff rolling, unfortunately, right at the time the Korean War was starting. So they actually had to, again, get a second, in essence, approval from the Truman administration to allow strategic materials like steel to be used to build the stadium at a time when we were at war in Korea. Um, but it got done. And the hope was for the minor league brewers that, you know, they were going to be in a cutting edge state of the art, you know, probably the best AAA stadium in the nation. But there's a lot of people in Milwaukee County, including Fred Miller, who was instrumental also in building the Milwaukee Arena. Uh, he was also instrumental in saving the Green Bay Packers in the 1950s by bringing his brewery in and sponsoring them. He really felt that if you're going to build a stadium, the best course of action is to get a major league team in there immediately. Otherwise, it'll always look like a major league team is playing in a minor league park. So I think, honestly, the ulterior motive in pushing for a lot of this was to get Major League Baseball. And in uh, March of 1953, Lou Perini, the owner of the Boston Braves, announces that the Braves are moving to Milwaukee. National League approves the sale. The move just a couple of days later. The team arrives April 8th, 1953. How nuts does Milwaukee go when the Braves show up? Oh, it was, it had to have been an amazing scene. Um, you know, people still talk about, you know, what it was like. Um, some of the players, um, you know, that go all the way back to the uh, original days, there's not many of them left. I know Del Crandall's still around, but they talked about it for years later, how they were treated in Milwaukee. They couldn't pay for gas. They couldn't buy, you know, buy their own groceries. People were giving them stuff. The level of gratitude that the fans in the area had for the team was off the charts. And, you know, Perini admitted he's like we never would have had anything like this in Boston and I think it actually in some ways it maybe broke his heart a little bit because as much as he saw this you know Milwaukee and he saw southeastern Wisconsin embracing the Braves I think he really wished that would have happened for him in Boston it just never did he was a Boston guy through and through if he could have saved the team and kept him in Boston he would have done it he always wanted to be in Boston he begrudgingly brought his team here he was gracious to the fans and everything. He really, truly did appreciate what they did here. I just know he preferred it would have been closer to home for him. We're talking with Pat Steele. His book is Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee. This book really is about the business of baseball and the business of baseball in Milwaukee. How does all the goodwill and, and loving feelings towards the, the, the new Braves affect the, the negotiations for that first lease? Honestly, it was a sweetheart deal that the county gave on the front end. Part of the whole process to get, get Perini to come. So when Bill Vex said he wants to move the Browns and it became very public, it's going to force Lou Perini's hand. So behind the scenes, Perini was actually working through Miller and a couple other people to work with the county board to get some improvements put in the stadium and to get a lease that, it, you know, that the team could actually come and have some chance of being successful. What happened is 
the team was far more successful than what they had thought because two things took place. There was excitement because there was new baseball and the team got good. All those players that were matriculating through that were going to help the team started to come up to the big club in 53. They went from seventh place to finish second. They were competitive every year through 59 and they never had a losing season here. So the team was really good and it's always, you know, a lot of fun to go out and see a team on the rise. So what happened is, they were actually paying a very little amount of money for the amount of use that they were getting out of the stadium. So the Braves volunteered to pay more. Well, when the first stadium lease expired and a new one was to be negotiated was after they had just won the world series. And the attitude at this point for Milwaukee County began to change. In fact, some County supervisors are basically like, all right, now we get our money because they knew that the team was going to be in theory locked into what they thought was a great baseball stadium. And now they could actually pay back the taxpayers for the construction of the ballpark, et cetera. Did the Milwaukee County ever really understand the dynamics and the economics of baseball? It seems that throughout this period, especially from 57 on, they treated the Braves as a tenant to get revenue from, as opposed to a partner to invest in. Oh, I think that's a great way, Stu, the way you just said it. I think that's exactly the way the county looked at it. And no, I don't think they really understood it until after the team was gone. In fact, if you look at the deal that they gave Seelig's group and the Milwaukee Brewers in 1970, you know, they signed a 25-year lease immediately. There was no way in 1957 they were going to lock in even 10 years because the county was afraid they were going to miss out on revenue. So, yeah, they, they did look at it that way. And, again, you know, it's kind of a two-fold thing. I understand where the county was coming from. They have to look their voters right in the face and say, hey, I'm not subsidizing baseball. You know, we're doing what's in the best interest of the county. But the flip side is you had some people that were on the, on the uh, uh, county board who were looking at, hey, they're playing in a municipal stadium. They ought to be operating as a nonprofit. Well, that doesn't work in Major League Baseball. You know, there's a reason why teams moved. Usually it's because they weren't very good. It's usually because they weren't very popular in the original city they came from. What made the Braves experience different was they were successful when they came. But to keep that level of success up, you need to have scouts and you need to have people going on. You need to have a very fervent minor league system. And you couldn't do that if you weren't maximizing the revenues made at County Stadium. And the county did things like uh, anytime you wanted to raise the price of a product. So let's say there's a ham shortage and you want to raise the price of a ham sandwich. Well, you couldn't just raise the price of County Stadium. You had to go through the county board to do it. If the price of beer went up and you wanted to raise the price, you couldn't just do it. You had to go through the county to get approval to do it. So it was uh, the Braves always felt like they had to go on their knees to the county board and beg for things that they desperately needed. Even something as simple as signage. You know, um, the limited amount of revenue they made back in the 50s off signage on things like scoreboards and stuff, the Braves never got. The county got all the money that was inside the stadium. The Braves were obligated to take care of the parking lots, and they never got a dime of revenue from it. That to me is unconscionable. I mean, how, how the Braves could have looked at it and said, wait a minute, we're responsible for the parking lot and we don't get any revenue. Yeah. Uh, now, on, on the, the, the good part of that story is that that made Milwaukee County Stadium the birthplace of baseball tailgating. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, in many ways. And again, it, it was located in the right spot. And, you know, one of the arguments Milwaukee County made uh, in federal court later on was, hey, look, you know, we, we need to be compensated for the loss of the team because, you know, we put the, the east-west corridor closer to the stadium than where it originally was supposed to go. So there's all these dynamics within the community, you know, that, that we did because of baseball. And then when baseball goes, you know, well, but County Stadium was, you know, was a perfect location, which is why, again, if you think back, you know, 20 25 years ago when, you know, uh, Bud Selig's talking about building a new ballpark and where's it going to go when there's, oh, build it down, you know, downtown, do, do what the, the Cleveland Indians did with Jacob's feeling, put it downtown view of the lake. And he always understood the value of those parking lots, that it's easy access to the interstate. You can get in, you can get out, you, you know, there was a lot of value in doing that. And I think, again, the success of Miller Park has proven that that vision that the original Milwaukee County Board to put a stadium in the Menominee Valley had back in the 1940s and early 50s. The other unique controversy to Milwaukee was the situation with beer. I mentioned that you won the Gambrinus Award and Gambrinus was the god of beer. Talk about the impact of the unique Milwaukee culture towards beer and the, and the concept of bringing in your own beer, which, which strikes us as a fairly odd concept these days. 
Well, you know, it is. And, you know, it's funny because everything is a matter of perspective. And what you've always had is what you presume you'll, you know, will always be. Back in the, in the 1950s, you know, the Milwaukee brewing industry was just roaring. The Schlitz Brewing Company was the number two brewer in America. You know, they actually sponsored multiple teams eventually in the 1960s, including the Tigers and the Astros. And, you know, so they, there, there's revenue coming in. A lot of the brewery workers got free beer. So they could take their, you know, beer home at the end of the week, whatever it would be, or, you know, buy beer relatively cheaply. And the county built it so you could bring beer into the stadium. There was no prohibition on bringing in alcohol into the ballpark. They kind of realized the error of their ways is that they weren't generating enough revenue. But again, from the Braves, they were only getting a percentage of it. So for them, it didn't necessarily matter until the second stadium deal. And then the percentages went up a little bit. But the people, the fans, you know, from just got used to being able to bring in whatever you wanted. If you wanted to bring in a quarter barrel of beer, you could do it. One of my favorite stories I have in the book is a couple guys that whenever the Cardinals would come to town, take a garbage can, fill it up with ice and sell Budweiser in the ballpark. And they sell it cheaper than what you could buy a beer, you know, in a paper cup. They sell glass bottles. Which, the county said, and they acknowledged it. You know, there was a safety issue because people would, if they got drunk, start chucking bottles around. That was a safety issue. And so the real reason why they pushed to stop, this, you know, carry-ins was because both the county and the team realized they were losing a significant revenue stream by just allowing people to bring in their own beer. And they were the only stadium left that didn't prohibit that. So there were a lot of fans that got upset when the Braves and the county put this in place. Both wanted it, and ironically, both point the finger at the other guy for being the cause of this. But, you know, there was, you know, a downturn in attendance. People blame it on the beer or, you know, the beer ban. I don't necessarily know if that's the case. I think there's a lot of other dynamics that were going on at the same time. The team wasn't as good. It was struggling. Um, you know, the Green Bay Packers were rising up. And yes, the Packers don't play in the middle of summer, but sports interest was starting to shift away from baseball across the country. And it just seemed to be a little bit more highlighted in Milwaukee because the numbers seem so different than where they were just, you know, 10 years earlier. And unfortunately, uh, Mr. Perini had sort of a old fashioned view towards television. He thought that television had been very bad for attendance in Boston. And so he did not allow televising of the games, which is a way to not build a new fan base. Right. Well, I don't think anybody really in Major League Baseball understood it. Um, you know, and ironically, again, you, know, you talked about Bill Vec before, you know, Bill Vec was one who understood it. And he always said, look, you know, if we're going to have the New York Yankees playing the Cleveland Indians, why are the Yankees making $10,000 a game? And, you know, the, the Indians are only making a thousand. And again, I'm just using raw numbers, but it's like the Yankees couldn't they have to play another team, so why are we not splitting the revenue on any broadcast? Well, baseball didn't want to do that because they thought it was socialism. You know, they, th they thought, you know, uh, Bill Veck was a terrible person because he's advocating, in essence, a communist approach to, you know, financing baseball, but they missed the element of the competition. So television was not really understood that it could generate interest by those other fans to make them want to go out to the stadium as opposed to stay away. Now, the irony is, you know, when Boston started to televise Braves games at home, now think about this, 1949, 1950-51, how many televisions were in private homes? Again, you're talking a fraction of the number, right? So if you wanted to go watch a game, you had to go to the local bar, you had to go somewhere where there was a television, right? It's not like today where you can be watching, you know, baseball on 13 different devices in your living room. So they didn't understand that television could generate interest. Now, ironically, in Milwaukee, they had actually televised some minor league Brewers games, including the World Series games here. But when Lou Perini came, did not want any part of that because he felt it would keep fans away. And the county didn't want it. In fact, the county later on put escalators in the stadium deals that would uh, punitively hit the Braves organization if they decided to just randomly start televising home games because the county felt they were missing out then on parking lot revenue and, you know, brat sales and beer sales and whatever else would take place inside the ballpark. So they never really understood the value of television. One of the great imponderables, and unfortunately it also involves a personal tragedy, is the death of Fred Miller in a plane crash in 1954. Fred Miller, one of the outstanding advocates for sport and Wisconsin and economic development. How does this all play out if Fred Miller doesn't die in that plane crash in December 1954? Does he buy the Braves in 1962 when Lou Perini finally wants to sell? 
there's two ways I can answer your question, Stu. You know, what would have happened? Okay. At the time that he died, Lou Perini said in an interview with Sports Illustrated that, yes, you know, I was in negotiations with him to, you know, buy interest in the team or maybe sell it, you know, the team to him at some point. So that's what he said in 1954. In 1966, during the court hearings, Perini said, oh, I had no contact with him. I had no interest in selling. We had zero discussions about doing this. So what is the truth? You've got two different answers from the same guy. Yes, I do believe had Miller lived, that had Perini wanted to sell the team, I think Fred Miller would have been the first one he went to. Unfortunately, that option is no longer there. And so with the death of Miller, really, frankly, December 54, it kind of seals the fate of the, of the Braves here. Now, again, there's ways that it could have been saved. You know, had the stadium deal been longer, had they cut it, say, for example, even a 10-year stadium deal in 57, okay? That keeps them here through at least the 1967 season going into 68. Atlanta was not going to wait three extra years to get a baseball team. So I think the Braves would still be here. So there's all this other stuff that kind of falls back into place, but the death of Miller is kind of the first bad thing that, you know, the bad omen that things aren't going to go right because the one guy that had the financial resources, the interest, the drive, and the connections to do it is taken away from us at a very, very young age. Did any of the protagonists impress you? Did anybody really impress you with, with their skill and their leadership abilities in, in this whole narrative? You know, a couple people that, that maybe, you know, and Miller's one of them, that, that just kind of had a vision and a sight for, for the way things needed to be. You know, Selig, of course, is going to be a later dynamic. And I think he and, you know, Ed Fitzgerald and a couple of those guys, you know, um, the Eline family, they certainly knew, you know, what needed to be done. But you really have a lot of apathy on the county board at a time when the team needed help. And with the new ownership group that comes in in November of 62, again, they're young guys. I think Bartholomew, I think was 34 uh, when he put the organization together to buy the team. And unfortunately, he just passed away this past year. You know, it was a lot of young people and there was a lot of talking past one another. But the Braves organization, you know, once Lou Perini stepped aside as president in 1957, I, I think, again, that was another sign that things were not going well. Um, eventually, John McHale takes over after Cairns gets reassigned to a real estate deal down in Florida. And, and McHale never had, I think, the confidence of the county. He became, in many ways, the living embodiment of things that were going wrong with the team. And it just became very easy to blame McHale. And I think he honestly became a little bit bitter about it. We're talking with Pat Steele. His book is Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee. We have this tremendous pinnacle of success in 1957, 2.2 million uh, butts in the seats, record setting almost every year that, that they're there those first couple of years. 12 of their 13 years, the Braves outdraw the Chicago Cubs. Why did people think Chicago was a better baseball city than Milwaukee? it was Chicago. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it, that's honestly going to be the simple answer. I mean, you know, look at, look how many times the Braves outdrew the Boston Red Sox too. You know, even, even in a downturn. So again, when you look at the attendance, fan retention was actually astronomically high in Milwaukee because fans came from not just Milwaukee County, but they came primarily from the five counties that surrounded County Stadium. And obviously they pulled from other parts of the state, but you know, the retention of the fans was actually very high. The problem is the Cubs are an established team. They're playing at Wrigley Field. They're not going anywhere. So no matter how bad a season could be in Chicago, nobody was going to say, hey, we got to move the Cubs because they're still going to make more revenue than what the Braves would be here. Again, one of the other dynamics that starts to go wrong is when the Twins go out to, you know, to Minnesota in 1961. It kind of cuts off those western parts of the state and Minnesota, Iowa, you know, the Dakotas from potentially being part of the Braves radio network. And now you're, you're landlocked. Team's landlocked. You know, in Milwaukee, you can't really, you know, send your broadcast too far down in the Chicago area. Um, you're prohibited by the lake on the east. You've got, you know, a, not a lot of population up in the UP. So your broadcast numbers are going to be fairly limited. But because the numbers have been so high, and if they start to decline at all, people will question whether or not you're still a good baseball town. So again, if you think about it this way, Stu, you know, if you're at 2.2 million in 1957 and you're at 750,000 by 1962, people are saying there's a problem. If you're the Chicago Cubs and you're at 680,000, 6.5, 
you know, seven point, whatever the numbers would be, it was more consistent. There wasn't the dramatic drop off in Chicago like there was in Milwaukee. So 1962, Perini finally decides to sell, puts the team up for sale in October. And as you say, a syndicate headed by William Bartholomew uh, and some other Chicagoans buys it. It does not appear they did their due diligence before putting their $6.2 million down. How much did they overpay for the team and how much did that cause the problems that later developed? Well, you know, we can argue the numbers. You know, it was clear that they overpaid for the team. They bought the team at a time when interest in baseball across the nation was in decline. Baseball attendance was down dramatically, particularly in the American League. You know, you mentioned again the Yankees before. You know, in many ways, the you know the the American League pennant in for most of the 1950s was already settled by May. So, you know, there really was an attendance issue taking place in the American League. It started to leach into the National League a little bit. Uh, by the late 50s, early 60s, but the numbers were down everywhere. So I think, you know, if, if you look at, you know, the, the grand picture of this new ownership group, when they bought the team, they presumed everything could go back to where it had been in 53 and 54, that you can get the fan base, you know, up over 1.5 to 2 million people on a regular basis. And it just wasn't economically feasible at this era, particularly when the team was in decline. So, you know, how much they overpaid, they probably paid a third too much of what they should have, but they desperately wanted to be baseball owners. It was harder to be a baseball owner than a U.S. senator. It still is. There's, you know, so when you think about it that way, they had invested at one point in, in the Chicago White Sox. They hoped to take a majority interest from the Allen brothers. The Allen brothers decided not to sell them the majority interest, so they went looking somewhere else. They got their hands on the team. They bought the Braves. Now, when it becomes apparent that attendance is not going to meet what their expectation is to pay down their debt, the balloon payments they've got coming up, you've got you only got a couple options. One is to sell the team. And they didn't want to do that because they wanted to be baseball owners. The second thing is move the team somewhere else where the revenue stream is going to be greater because Milwaukee was already pretty much locked into what it could be. Now, if it would have been a guy like Selig that bought the team that was willing to, in essence, operate – at a lower revenue stream, I think the team could have made it here. But the new owners want it. They want to own the team. And um, I had a chance to interview uh, Bartholomew, and I spent about two hours on the phone with him. And, you know, some of the answers I got were, you know, very, very um, common answers that he's given since the Braves left. But there were a couple of really good insights. And I asked him about that. I said, did you buy the team to move? And his response was, he's like, he's like, look, my businesses were in Chicago. My kids are going to school down there. It's like my wife and I had a place in Lake Geneva to go from Lake Geneva to County Stadium and get up in our box was 40 minutes. He's like, to go see a game down in Atlanta, we had to go to the airport, get on a plane, fly to Atlanta. He's like, it was much easier to, you know. So I honestly believe when they bought the team, the goal was to make it work in Milwaukee but they realized fairly quickly that the numbers just were not going to be where they needed them to be. If they would have bought the team on a pay scale where they only had to draw seven, you know, 650 to 750,000 a year to make ends meet, I think the team would still be here, but they bought it at a time when they expected to make 1.5 to 2 million fans a year. And that just was not going to happen almost anywhere outside of Los Angeles in the middle of the 1960s. So at the, and just at this time, as it happens, the capital of the New South, Atlanta, is doing exactly what Milwaukee did 10 years earlier. They are building a stadium to lure a, a new team in. How early did the possibility of the Braves moving to Atlanta become serious, and how long did the Braves deny it? Well, you know, the first serious um, allegation that the ownership group was, was negotiating with Atlanta was already in uh, June and July of 1963. But still, one of the things you really have to understand is that when the Braves moved to Milwaukee in 53, it started this massive shift of baseball everywhere where half the teams moved. And so every team was rumored to be going somewhere else. In fact, the first time I saw in a newspaper clipping that there was, you know, the idea that the Milwaukee Braves were going to move was 1955, that they were going to go, you know, and the idea that baseball owners have, and I kind of have that little sub theme in my book where I talk about the athletics. And it's in there for a reason, because I want people to understand how some ownership groups viewed their teams, that they're there to, that if I want to move it to Louisville and be there for two years, I can always make move more fans. It doesn't work. I'll just move them somewhere else. That's how some owners viewed, you know, th their team, that they could just simply pack up and go whenever they chose uh, to do so. But, you know, with, with the Braves 
you know, group, their goal shifted to survivability as owners. And so with the rumors that, you know, starting as early as 55, the team was going to move. Again, it got serious in 63. I think by early 64, there's open negotiations. And the only reason it's happening with Milwaukee is there were two teams that had deals in place that were supposed to expire by 65. One was the Cleveland Indians. The other was the Milwaukee Braves. So again, had the county been farsighted enough to do a 10 or a 15-year stadium lease, the Milwaukee Braves would still be here because Atlanta would have gone after the Indians hard. And when you talk about the dynamics of teams moving, because owners get the revenue also from away games, mm -hmm. they have a vested economic interest in letting owners move because it'll, it'll pump up attendance. They'll make more money, except, of course, when the other owner is Charlie Finley or Bill Veck. And at that time, economics takes a backseat towards personalities. It's like, no, we don't like you. We're not going to let you do it. Well, and they were the only two that were ever really, you know, denied movements. And, you know, part of the other reason, too, and Phil Wrigley said this, you know, he's like, you know, when the Braves were going to vote uh, or ask for a vote to move to Atlanta, Phil Wrigley agreed to do this. And he said, look, I voted a lot of them to move from Boston to Milwaukee. Why would I now not vote for them to move somewhere else? If an owner feels it's economically viable for his team to go somewhere else, why should I deny them the opportunity? And I think that's the way, honestly, a lot of baseball owners, you know, viewed it. You know, there's a story that I like to tell. It has nothing to do with baseball, but it really can kind of puts again in the mindset of what it was. Bob Ursay, who owned the Baltimore Colts at a time when their stadium, Memorial Stadium, was in decline. And he started to shop the team around very aggressively, places like Jacksonville, Phoenix, whatever. He was trying to get the team out of Baltimore because Baltimore wouldn't build him a new stadium. And he came back and gave this very famous press conference. And he was drunk. And it's very apparent that his drinking problem that he had, you know, which was public knowledge, really kind of came to fruition at this press conference. He could barely walk through the door. But he had a moment of lucidity where he basically looked at all the reporters asking the questions about moving his team. And he said, look, this isn't your team. This is my team. I bought it. I paid for it. I work for it. My family works for it. It's my team. And honestly, that encapsulates the way a lot of ownership groups look at their teams. And they don't understand the dynamic. You mentioned earlier, you know, the investment from the county and the team that there's this mutual investment in all of this. Neither side really understood that long term because owners viewed it like a separate company as though it were a plumbing company that if I want to move my plumbing company, you know, from, you know, Marquette, Michigan to Wacan, Iowa, I can clearly do that. Nobody's going to care. Well, nobody invests emotionally and financially in a plumbing company. We do with our baseball teams. We do with our basketball teams. We do with our football teams. And that's why there's value in sport. And I, I don't really think people grasped how serious the situation was when the rumor started to kick out that the team might leave. And that's why the new owners thought that they could just break their, they could walk away from the lease with another year to go in County Stadium and, and move down to Atlanta. Milwaukee County, like all good Americans would do, sue, and they keep the team in Milwaukee for the 1965 season. Tactically, was that a good idea for Milwaukee County to file that lawsuit? Well, clearly not because, you know, here you have the number two drawing team, you know, region in baseball for 13 seasons gets bypassed over for expansion by cities like San Diego, Montreal, and Seattle. And I believe that had Milwaukee County played ball on the front end, we probably would have got a team much sooner than what we did. And the business community was actually divided. There's two ways to look at it. If you make them stay and you have great turnout of fans, you know, you can prove that Milwaukee County is still a great area for baseball. Again, they drew that last year just over 550,000 people. I mean, it was a lame duck year. Everybody knew the team was leaving. Look at the, the Braves attendance 10 years after that. In Atlanta, they drew less than that when everybody knew they weren't going anywhere. So attendance alone wasn't the, you know, the only factor. However, there's all, you know, all these other dynamics that kind of filter into how we view this. What was that 1965 season like? Did you ever talk to your mom about what the, the emotions of going to a game under those settings and those conditions were? Yeah, you know, there was a lot of people that went out there to, to enjoy it for one last time, you know. Um, and it was upsetting because even something as simple as, you know, if you went and bought a yearbook, the Braves yearbook in 1965 does not say Milwaukee on it. If you went to the ballpark, particularly later in the year, you could not buy a cap 
you know, the blue cap with the red bill and a white M on it. You could get one with an A on it, though. Um, so there, oh, there was oh, a, that's harsh. That's, oh, that's it really was. Hard. It was a little bit vicious, too. <laughs> you know, and when the team looked like they were going to do really well and might actually have a chance to go to the World Series, there was speculation that the Braves' ownership did not want to sell tickets in the Milwaukee area because they felt fans were conducting a boycott. Um, they weren't. They're just like, why am I going to get emotionally invested in somebody that's leaving at the end of the year? So, you know, what was the best course of action? You know, kind of filter back to what your previous question was. You know, I, I think that if you let them go and you bank on the, the goodwill that you've invested over the last couple, you know, last 13 seasons, you could probably say we're in a good spot to go. If you make them stay, there's a possibility that maybe this stay will be extended and the team will be here in perpetuity. The business community understood the, the financial risks of letting the team simply walk, but the hope was they could get somebody else. The county never really understood that, and their instinct was to sue and make them stay. And I, I think clearly history's proven that that approach was probably wrong. How much did the Braves lose that last lease, those last three years, and what was the economic impact to Milwaukee County of the Braves leaving? Oh, it was... Uh, Again, the, the, the revenue that Milwaukee County was making over the years was in decline as fan attendance went down. Now, there was a big push to save the Braves in 64. Pumped attendance back up to about 900,000. But you, you didn't have the same impact, on, you know, in the bars in and around, um, you know, County Stadium. You didn't have the same impact of hotels that you did in the early 1950s when people would travel here and spend a week and go to games. My dad grew up in western Wisconsin off of Sparta. And, you know, he talked about a couple of times where they would, you know, get in the car and they would go to Milwaukee for a weekend and catch a couple of Braves games. So, you know, that had kind of stopped already by the early 1960s. And so that revenue was probably not going to come back. What happened was the county made such little money in because attendance was down. They, I think they made in 64, they made just over $350,000, you know, total off revenue off the counties, not including parking, but just that that the Braves said, hey, look, we'll cut you a check for $500,000. You don't have to do a thing. Just let us go. $500,000, we walk away. We go to Atlanta. The county said no. Halfway through the year, when it was clear fans weren't coming out, they tried the same thing. Hey, $500,000 for the remainder of the year, half the season, $500,000, let us walk away. And the county said no. Made them stay. Was there no one in county government who had a brain operating at this time? I mean, that, that's just unconscionable. Well, you know, and it, it was spiteful on both sides, you know. Um, you mentioned John Doyne earlier, you know, and, and Doyne was a guy, you know, he liked baseball. I don't know if he loved baseball. Um, you know, Henry Meyer, you know, the mayor of Milwaukee, he liked baseball, didn't love it. You know, he just really didn't have a lot of passion from from the public sector. You know, they, they felt, and I think part of it was, they viewed County Stadium different than we did. I'm not sure how many games you ever got to County Stadium, but I've always said this about it. It looked like it was designed by, you know, a Soviet engineering firm and built by East German construction crews. You know, it was the epitome of a municipal stadium. There was no old ballpark charm in that ballpark. Now, I love County Stadium. I just, I, I did. I grew up there. I love County Stadium. But it was not Fenway Park. It's not Tiger Stadium. It was County Stadium. And the fact that the Braves by 1965 were paying more in rent to play a county stadium than the Yankees were playing to rent Yankee Stadium tells you everything you need to know about the financial dynamics in Milwaukee. And then you've got this, ironically, amazing amount of TV revenue just waiting in, in the South to, to be exploited. Yeah. I mean, for, for Perini's attitude towards TV, the fact that it was the TV revenue in Atlanta that was really the deciding factor for the Braves moving down adds, adds a, another irony to this situation. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, my daughter right now lives in, in Tennessee, and uh, she lives in Cookville, which is about halfway between Nashville and Knoxville. And their local radio station, when they play baseball games, they are part of the Braves radio network. So as far away as Tennessee, they're still part of it. So you had a seven-state broadcast network immediately when you moved down there, you know, versus just the state of Wisconsin and the UP, you know, for the Braves here. Um, you might have a station or two in Iowa, but, you know, the, the Twins have taken up a lot of that. So the revenue streams are just not the same. You know, Schlitz offers five hundred to $600,000, you know, for broadcast rights. And, you know, Coca-Cola throws their money in and it could be up to $5 million. Well, anybody who owns a club, you do basic math, you're going to look at the offer you got in Atlanta and realize you can make more money playing in an empty stadium 
than you could in Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee County Stadium with, you know, a packed house. So financially, I understand why they did what they did. And in many ways, I feel their hands were pushed by the county, by some of the other circumstances that were taking place. Were Milwaukee Braves fans spoiled by that immediate success? I mean, World Series champs in your in your fifth year, back-to-back pennants, did they get too much too soon? Oh, I, I yeah, absolutely. I think that's, you know, this is a very succinct way to put it. In fact, uh, Lou Perini said the same thing too. When, uh, you know, the Brewers came from Seattle to Milwaukee, we're in the American League and he used to go to Red Sox games and, there, you know, there's a great exchange he had with an old Milwaukee sports reporter who was out there seeing the Brewers. And that's exactly what Perini said. He's like, with the Braves, it just came too easy, you know. And I've said this, you know, if you look at the numbers and reverse them, so start with 550,000 and work your way up the other way, Braves would still be here. Because you say, okay, 550,000 was a terrible year in Milwaukee, but it was almost double what they had the year before, um, you know, in Boston. So if you said, hey, you can go to Milwaukee and double your attendance, that would have been a success, right? And then go up from there. So everything is seen in that perspective. The problem that Milwaukee had was that when the new ownership group bought the team, interest in baseball was down. Now, had the team come and struggled for a while, say they don't go to the World Series in 57, say they don't go to 61 or 62. Again, same thing. I think the Braves are still here because the, the attendance numbers would have been far more realistic. If you looked at, okay, attendance is going to be somewhere between 700000 and a million. Now you know what to pay for the team when you buy it for Luperini based off attendance numbers like that on an average year. When the team moves, there's an automatic spike up of interest. And because the team got good, that number stayed high and kept climbing because it's a lot of fun to be a fan of a team on the rise. It's much harder to be a fan of a team that finishes in third place when you fell from first. And that started to be what happened as the Braves declined, fan interest kind of went somewhere else. So yeah, I think the fans were spoiled. Are there villains in this narrative or just people who didn't rise to the occasion and do all they could or should have done? Well, you know, in the email exchange that we had, one of the questions I asked you and it's one I ask everybody is who's the bad guy in the story? Because you can point the finger at almost anybody and at any point say, okay, here's where it all went wrong. I've had people say, well, you know, it was Lou Perini, you know, because he was, you know, held his cards close to his chest, didn't really embrace, you know, the Milwaukee idea, had he done something more. Others will argue the Milwaukee County Board, some will argue the new ownership group, some will argue the fans. You know, I, I do think there's a lot of villains that are here. The problem is all the villains felt that they were on the right side of history. The county, I understand the county's perspective. Eugene Grobschmidt stands in front of his voters and says, look, I don't want to be seen as, as you know, bankrolling baseball. It's a private venture. Why are we doing this? We should be capitalizing the revenue streams we get for the stadium because had it not been for the stadium, they wouldn't be here. Why are we not doing this? I get that. I get that perspective, but I get the owner's perspective too, is that look, we got to maximize revenue we're making because if we don't do it, what happens? Our team goes into decline, which is exactly what happened. You didn't have the same number of scouts out there and you didn't have the same number of people developing players and your minor league team started. And there was a lot of, you know, this domino effect that took place. And the fact that you didn't have on the front end, a local ownership group that was in position immediately. Now, again, it's not really their fault because they didn't know the team was going to come up for sale because it happened so quickly, but had they been in a position, had teams incorporated, or the Milwaukee Brewers Baseball Club Incorporated, which was founded in 65, been in a position to buy the team immediately, maybe the team is here. But it's just, like I said, there's times I walked away and just had a pox on every side. This is just, there, there was no good that was going to come out of this. It was a perfect storm of just crap to happen for this franchise. I think there's a line from Robert Burns of, of, of all the words of, of voice and pen, the saddest are it might have been. Mm-hmm. And to think of Henry Aaron spending his career in Milwaukee, yeah. the greatest slugger in the history of baseball, spending his career and his life and his community investment in Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah, he loved it just, I mean, think about that. Oh, I, I know. You know, and um, I, I kind of close out the book and I have, you know, a couple of my thoughts. And I said, you know, maybe in the end, it, it, it's okay that they're here because it allows us to have this magical moment in time where things just seem simpler, you know, and you get the, the image of, the, of the, the, the crisp uniforms that they had and, and the color of the caps running out on the field. And, 
you know, you never got to see them being a terrible team in the 1970s and those crappy polyester uniforms and the powder blue color they wore. I mean, it's just, you know, there's a lot of things you missed out. And so maybe there's that level of nostalgia that allows us to look back and say that same thing, what might have been had they stayed. How would baseball be different? What would Miller Park look like had Fred Miller lived? You know, there's just all these other questions that we're not able to answer. And then unfortunately, when the Brewers came in, there was a lot of people that never really came. I, I still know people who have not gone to a Brewers game because they're like, well, the Braves left. Well, Brewers have been here for 50 years. Why are you not going to a baseball game? Well, I got my heart hurt when won the Braves. Well, okay, you're depriving yourself of the opportunity to see baseball you know, uh, to enjoy it, you know, so, but there's still, there's still lingering resentment over the team. And again, it's, I, I, I've said it this way too, you know, I, I don't understand it because I wasn't alive. You know, we came close to losing the Bucks back in the eighties, you know, when the uh, Pettit family stepped up and helped build the Bradley center, you know, we came close to losing the Bucks again before the five serve forum was coming up. We came close to losing the Brewers before, you know, Miller park was built, you know, maybe the closest thing I'd say, can you imagine if the green Bay Packers left? And, you know, you turn on the TV one day on a Sunday and it's, you know, the Wichita Falls Packers playing and they got our green and gold uniforms. And, you know, they're talking about, oh, back in the ice ball, you know, this Packers, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, they're not from Wichita Falls. They're from Green Bay. You know, and so I think that in many ways, you know, with that Milwaukee connection. And, and again, I remember it in the 90s talking with my folks about it because, Whenever the Braves were in the World Series, my mom was automatically cheering for whoever they were playing against. <laughs> you know? so, didn't matter who it was. She just did not want to see the Braves. And me, I'm like, hey, the Braves used to be here. This is pretty cool. I'm putting my Milwaukee Braves cap on and I'm you know, cheering them on. And my mom's like, you know, you're going to get me angry doing that. Like, oh, well, I guess I can't. You know, so. I'm afraid that is all the time we have. My thanks again to Patrick Steele. Again, the book is Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee. There is lots of big news in the local book world to tell you about. The Wisconsin Book Festival begins this week with both virtual and in-person events. Mystery to Me Books on Monroe Street was named by USA Today as one of America's 10 best independent bookstores. And the new Room of One's Own is now open for in-person browsing at their new home on Atwood Avenue. You can find details on their respective websites. And speaking of the Book Festival, next week we will have that rarest of guests, one who hits all four criteria when we welcome UW professor Chad Allen Goldberg, who is appearing at the Book Festival on October 23rd, for a discussion of his book, Education for Democracy, Renewing the Wisconsin Idea, another book from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman and all of us here at Mass and BookBeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. And thank you so much for supporting WORT. And now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored community radio. (laughs) 